Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Welcome to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell, and as ever, thankfully, joined by my two co-hosts. The first of which is Tom Warville, who I'd like to introduce to you as a nominee for the Data Journalist of the Year at the Press Awards. Tom, that's a big one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. The XG boys up against the uh, the COVID chart lads. So, um, yeah, <laughs> thrilled thrilled to be nominated. was a big surprise, but... Um, yeah, really, really happy. Are you taking the names of the many XG haters that we've seen during this intensely tedious period of XG Twitter discourse so that you can refer to them in your victory speech? Yeah, um, the black book's out. I'll leave it. I'll leave it at that. Oh, strong words, strong <laughs> words. Michael Cox is, is with us as well. How are you doing, Michael? I'm very well, thank you, Ali. I saw something in David Ornstein's column on Monday and immediately thought of you. It was his description of the dispute between Manchester City and stats company Opta, which essentially is the question, should a penalty shootout victory count towards a winning streak when you're counting winning streak records? And my first thought, annoyingly, you're this far inside my head, rent-free, was I bet you Coxie's got a strong take on this. But for some reason, I couldn't decide which side you would take because sometimes you like to be a bit contrary and choose the <laughs> uh, the non-populist side. Um, where do you stand on this? Opta versus Man City? I'm very much on, on the Opta side, I'm afraid. I got way too involved in this debate when it was initially happening three seasons ago, I think it was, four seasons ago. No, it's, it's a drawn game and the tie is settled on a penalty, a penalty shootout. Otherwise, for example, you end up with very strange situations where after a two-legged game, you could lose on the night and then the score is tied on aggregate and then win the penalty shootout. So is that a win or a loss? I think that's one example of why it can be confusing. I mean, I kind of I understand where the confusion comes from, but I think the laws of the game is fairly clear. It says the penalty shootout is not part of the game. So I think that settles it for me. Yeah, well, that's my opinion on it sorted as well. Unlike you to get too involved in a debate like that on social media, I'm, I'm surprised and disappointed. Um, look, on this week's podcast, we're going to ask the big question, is XG good or bad? No, we're not going to insert <laughs> ourselves into that. Uh, instead, Michael, we've decided to add to the zonal marking glossary. Yeah, I think people quite enjoyed it uh, based upon the feedback we got when we discussed midfielders and their roles and positions and stuff. So we are uh, venturing a little bit further forward and looking at uh, attacking players. Yep, the final third in our sights today. Uh, let's start with an entry-level question, Michael. What's the difference between a striker, a forward and an attacker in your eyes? Yeah, I think most people agree on this, but I've never really seen it written down. For me, they're three different things. A striker just stays up front, can only play up front, 
pretty much belongs in the box. A forward can be extended to a kind of deeper player. So I'd say Eric Cantona was a forward, Dennis Burkamp was a forward. I definitely wouldn't have them as strikers. You then get wide forwards in a 4-3-3, again, playing high up the pitch. Attacker for me is a broader thing. I would say any player in a 4-2-3-1, pretty much, I would have them down as attackers. And if that means you include, let's say, Andres Townsend, who feels like a midfielder or a winger rather than attacker. But if that includes him, I'm, I'm pretty much fine with that. There's a very obvious diagram you can imagine in your head. You know, attacker covers them all, but forward is a bit more specific <laughs> and striker is even more specific than that. So just to chuck another example at you, so I'm absolutely clear. Meza Ozil, who we've covered on this podcast just a few weeks ago in a, a 4-2-3-1 for Real Madrid back in those days or, or for Arsenal, of course, that is an attacker in your eyes. Yeah, I think so. Considering how high up the pitch he plays, I think he's an attacker. I'd say something like Deli Ali when he was at his best as well. We think of him as a midfielder, but actually he was almost playing off Harry Kane, running in behind that kind of thing. So yeah, they are attackers for me. Okay. And of course, we're going to draw on the expertise of uh, the nominated data journalist of the year, Tom Warville now, by asking Tom, in terms of measuring strikers in the way that you like to measure players using the data uh, underlying numbers. What spring to mind to you as the immediate metrics of interest for a striker? In my notes, I first wrote down XG, then forgot goals are a thing as well. So goals and XG, of course, are extremely useful. Non-penalty goals more so than goals? Yes, absolutely. Non-penalty goals, just because those are, I guess, more of a reflection on the repeatability of scoring or a strike's ability to get chances and to, to score goals. Um Shots as well, because, you know, some strikers will tend to shoot from different situations, different types of assists, different patterns of play, which I think help us build a picture in our minds of the type of striker they are. Another common one is the number of touches in the opposition box a player gets. Um, Strikers don't always score. They look to link play as well. And I think that is uh, an interesting one to see if they can find space or they um, time their runs well such that they can be found in the box. And then you've got other stuff which can help you define the role, you know, take-ons, number of passes they make, number of aerial duels, quality in aerial duels, some of the stuff that we maybe look at uh, look at with the other positions as well, but they help us kind of, uh, I guess, group together similar strikers into similar groups and define them uh, the way they play, hopefully along the lines of the, uh, the various categories we'll get into on this episode. One of the things we spoke about when we did a glossary of terms for midfielders was how it can be difficult to work out specific roles just by using uh, the underlying numbers, the data. By contrast, presumably a striker or attacking player is slightly easier to profile statistically. Yeah, I I think so, mainly because a lot of the stuff that you care about that they do is on the ball, or more often than not, the things that they do off the ball are then then kind of found with the ball. So, you know, movement and uh, touches within the area, you can proxy that you're not really counting movements but when you look at Erling Haaland and the position of his shots you know that that's come from him being able to uh, get a good three four yards of um, you know of speed and find the ball in the box and I just think that they're one of the easier positions to profile I don't think there are as many blind spots the blind spots you have with strikers are similar to other positions in terms of speed acceleration some of the more physical stuff but I I get the feeling that on the the technical and tactical side of things um we we can get quite a lot um, of the way to understanding the type of player and if they're they're really good. And how do you go about measuring finishing? 
And can you measure finishing easily? Can you build a definitive picture about how good an attacking player is at finishing? I don't definitely don't think we can do it easily. And one of the big things we've learned from from football analytics in the past few years is not that. Um, well, essentially, it's that finishing is is fluid and it changes over time. And some players are consistently good finishers; others can be quite patchy. And I don't think there are uh, a ton of numbers out there to suggest that you know some players are great finishers and others aren't really. Um, I was looking at some numbers earlier on Roberto Firmino, and I saw that for the first three seasons of his Liverpool career, he was above his XG and finishing more than you'd expect given the chances he has. Um, and then the three seasons prior, he's been under every single season. And this season he's on six goals from from 10 XG. But overall, he scored 60, I think 61 non-penalty goals from an XG of 62. So on that, do you, do you infer that he's become a worse finisher over time? Was he a bit lucky? Is the number of shots that he had too small to suggest that we can get a definitive answer either way? Um, I don't know. I think finishing is a really hard thing to to measure and it's made even more difficult when people draw conclusions straight away from XG and finishing and one player is a bad finisher, another is good. We see now Neo Mopai this season is obviously in the press a lot and being spoken about a lot because he's not finishing his chances. Um, I think part of the reason for that is because there's a bit of a blind spot in the XG model, but I also think that he's been a bit unlucky this season as well. I mean, Kevin De Bruyne has um, undershot his XG more than Mopai has this season. He scored one goal from, I think, 5.2 or 6.2 XG in the league. So um, De Bruyne is a technically fantastic player. Maybe he's not a bad finisher, maybe he's a good finisher, but this season he's not finished what we'd expect. Mm. Michael, where do you stand on this? How easy do you find it to have an opinion on the finishing skill uh, of a a Premier League attacker, for example? Do you look at the underlying numbers? Do you prefer to use the eye test, look at technique or, or... literally just watch the film back? I mean, how do you go about this particular part of, of your analysis? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I do think this is the area where statistics and numbers and metrics have been particularly enlightening because they suggest there isn't as much variation between a good finisher and a bad finisher as what we would expect. I do think there is, we probably have read too much historically into maybe a player's body language, the kind of smoothness with which they finish rather than necessarily whether they're actually effective at getting uh, the ball in the net. I would say that someone like, for example, Thierry Henry, you know, in his peak years, looks like an incredibly, you know, calm, clinical finisher. I'd be interested to see really whether that is backed up by the numbers. Someone like Raheem Sterling scores a lot of goals. I've never thought of him as a convincing finisher. I think he he sometimes snatches at shots a little bit and, you know, the, the reason he gets so many goals is he gets into good positions that are all, almost unmissable. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we we talk about XG a lot and, and obviously that has focused on the ending of all the moves. And, yeah, it's, it's the area I think has been most, most interesting um, and has maybe forced us to kind of re reassess our uh, feelings about finishing. Yeah, there's, there's another element of it, which I don't think we've touched on too much, but it's looking at whether a player increases the likelihood of scoring from their chances, and that's looking at expected goals on target. Um, 
and this you see it's you find players who are really good at hitting the corners and I think that's sometimes what we think of when we think about finishing we think of um, Hoyman Son running away one on one and just getting it really low hard right to the bottom corner that gives the goalkeeper no chance um, and you see that with you know James Will Prowse you'd say is a great finisher but only from a specific situation which is from from dead balls so um, it feels like the more repeatable skill is getting into good goal scoring positions and finishing I think is is something that is still tough to measure but it's definitely an area of interest and one that I feel keeps cropping up over and over again. That's interesting so how likely do you think it is that post shot XG could move towards mainstream analysis in the same way that XG has done? Is that readily available? Is that uh, is that available to someone like myself? I don't think it is at the moment I don't think it's on kind of any public sites and it's usually I guess used more for goalkeepers and I think the reason mm-hmm. that it's exposed just for keepers is because keepers face a ton of shots and you learn about their shot-stopping ability. Whereas I think Mopai's had around 40 shots this season and of which I think he's only got a quarter on target. So it's hard to draw any definitive conclusions from that on his finishing ability. But yeah, it's certainly one I'd be interested in in seeing you know, where the, the wider media goes with it because um, usually the jump is from XG to goals. Whereas if we're being a bit more nuanced, maybe it should be from, from XG to XGOT and how well they're actually sticking in the corners or, or testing the keeper, really. Michael, let's get back to roles within the final third and start at the very top of the pitch. You talked about the difference between striker, attacker, forward. If I say to you a classic number nine, is that a synonym of striker or is there a little bit of nuance there? Yeah, I think pretty much the same. I think there's something about a classic number nine that probably implies physical size, strength, a little bit of ability in the air. I think there's some players you would say were definitely a striker, but weren't necessarily a classic number nine. Um, I think players who run in behind the opposition are a good example of that. Michael Owen was definitely a striker. I don't think he was a classic number nine, partly because he never wore that number. The reason he never wore that number was back then, if you were a player like him, you would always play off a big man. So it was, you know, Heskey for England or Shearer just before that. Um, obviously, Robbie Fowler was the main man when he when he broke through at Liverpool. But I think it says something about his his role as well. So yeah, I think there's a there's a similar similar type of player. I think if you are a classic number nine, you're also a striker, but maybe not necessarily uh, the reverse. It's a bit like a height limit before you can get on a ride at a theme park. You're kind of <laughs> saying to me that. Like I'm only five foot seven, so presumably in your eyes, I, I I physically could never be a classic number nine, regardless of the fact that that doesn't fit. You know, I wouldn't be considered that anyway. Yeah, I I'd probably go along with that. I'm sorry to say, Ali, but I mean, there's there's some strikers who buck the trend. I mean, Gignac, I always think of as is a bit of a classic number nine, even though he's he maybe is taller than he looks, but he he certainly doesn't have the the physical profile. Of a Giroud. I'll have to look up his height, but he's one of those who always strikes me as being a, a classic number nine despite not being that tall. And does a classic number nine, in order to be defined as such, have to be prolific in front of goal, have to have that innate goal scorer's instinct that we, we all think that we can recognise those strikers that have it and those strikers that don't have it. D- does a classic number nine have to be prolific? I'm on the fence about this. I, I think in one sense they do, they have to be charged with goal scoring, but on the other, I think someone who's just a hold-up player who feeds players coming in behind can feel like a classic number nine as well. I mean, Olivier Giroud is in that mould. I know he scores goals as well, but he's often been criticised for not scoring enough. So yeah, I, I'm not sure whether they do. 
one vaguely interesting thing about this, and I say very vaguely, is that I, I was once, <laughs> once, well, a couple of years ago, having a conversation with my granddad about football and mentioned a player was a striker. And my granddad is not into football at all, but presumably was aware of it at school. And he asked me whether a striker is what they used to call a centre forward, which kind of got me thinking that probably striker is a relatively modern term, as it, it might have been 40 or 50 years ago, maybe it wasn't used. So... That's kind of interesting because if you read old books, they always use the phrase centre forward. They don't ever say striker. And I guess strike, you know, it's striking for goal, isn't it? That's what the, the phrase implies. So maybe that has, uh, that indicates maybe you do have to be relatively prolific. I guess if we're sharing anecdotes, one that uh, that I have is we had a conference a couple of years ago back when I was working uh, at Opta um, in Germany and we had a Premier League recruitment analyst as one of the speakers and he was talking about the process that his club liked to find players and uh, find strikers specifically for their, their team, their system. Um, and he flashed up the data of one such player who they were looked at in a previous window and hadn't gone on to sign. And he, he had a profile where he scored a lot of goals but he didn't really do a lot else and he was kind of making the point that I think a lot of people really value goals at the striker, but there's so much more the strikers actually need to do at times, which means that pure goal scoring isn't a useful skill or necessarily translates from one league or one team into another. I think of a couple of examples that stick to mind are perhaps Jordan Rhodes at the start of his career, who was a great scorer and maybe we class him as a striker and nine, but if you needed him to do more, he maybe didn't quite have that in his game. And that's one where I guess, you know, when you come and look at, players from a scouting or recruitment even as a as a fan or a kind of hobby analyst point of view that's always something which is is interesting that you see certain players that don't move even this they score a ton of goals because there are other elements of the game that they are perhaps lacking this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's talk about a, a group of players, a role, if you will, that gets credit for doing more than just goal scoring, are the target men. Michael, t- to be a target man, do you have to be a big man? Do you have to be good in the air at, at competing for aerial duels with centre-backs? Is it to do with hold-up play? How do you define this one? Yeah, this got me thinking. Actually, I wasn't sure until I had to think about this. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, basically, a target implies it's a bit hopeful with your pass. So I think you've got to be able to launch the ball towards them, whether that's for crosses for them to go for goal themselves or holding up the ball for others. I don't think that necessarily matters. I mean, Giroud is a target man, I think, because of his back-to-goal play. On the other hand, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, who's having a really good season for Everton, but you look at his stats from this season and last... And he's got 26 goals and one assist. And isn't that good, I wouldn't have thought, at bringing others into play. But I'd still say that he was a target man in terms of his ability in the air. The fact he scores a lot of headers. So, yeah, I'm not sure it necessarily matters what they do with the ball. I think they just have to be the target for slightly hopeful balls from deep or from wide. Yeah, Calvert-Lewin's a great example, I feel, just because he's the next level of target man. Whereas before... They're probably, you know, larger, stronger players who could hold the ball up or nod it on and, and act as that platform to bring others into play and move the whole team a line or a line too further upfield. Whereas Calvert-Lewin is, is now someone who's great in the air, decent with his ball at the feet, even though I don't think he's amazing in possession. And he's really fast too. And I think that's quite a rare combo. And, and now we're seeing more players who have 
all three of these things. I mean, if you think of it before as a triangle, you're probably only two sides of it. Whereas now, when you can add add speed and agility and turn, you know turn of pace into that, I think you know, Harland is one example as well. Who you could maybe play him as a target man because he's of his size and his strength, but you're wasting the fact that he's quick as well. So it just makes him such a threat in the box. In this instance, with the modern striker that you're talking about there, who ticks all three boxes. Do we need a new phrase, Michael? The first thing that sprung to my mind there, thinking of Calvert-Lewin, and even some of the other strikers that are thriving in the Premier League at the moment outside of the big six, like Ollie Watkins and Patrick Bamford, who are hard to pigeonhole in one specific part of the game. I mean, any thoughts on complete forward? I, I know that it's used on Football Manager and that might not make you very happy, but it feels like to my eyes, a good way of summing up this maybe sort of modern prototype striker that seems to be able to to do a bit of everything. No, I agree. I like uh, I like complete forward or all round number nine. I quite like. I mean, you seem to think any phrase used on any computer game, I will dislike. <laughs> I don't think I've ever expressed any any disappointment towards any <laughs> language in computer games. But no, I, I agree with what Tom said. I thought it was quite interesting. In fact, maybe we should do an article on that, Tom. Actually, I just think that that triangle, as you put it, is is really important when you think about a striker because there's basically three ways to kind of beat a defence. You can kind of go over them with a, with a quick player. You can go round them by crossing and swinging it in. Or you can kind of go through them with link play. And I think if you've got a, if you've got a player at number nine or a striker, whatever you want to call him, who can do all three of those, then you've got more options. When you have someone like Giroud, for example... I think you only have two options, don't you? You can you can do the link play, you can cross the ball. But as we saw in, at the weekend against Manchester United, they didn't have any threat in behind. You know, that had quite significant knock-on effects for the game. It meant United could really push up and play a high defensive line. So, yeah, categorising it as a, as a triangle, I, I really like. There's something quite romantic still about a proper old-school poacher. Tom, I feel like this is one where you really can use the numbers to identify... The, the guys that we're talking about, who are the the old school poachers across Europe, those who literally do nothing except for score goals? Yeah, so I used Smart Scout for this to try and find a couple of names that we think of as poachers. So I was mainly looking at guys that receive the ball in the box a lot, um, shoot a lot, and then everything else they don't do a lot of. And the one player, regardless of the criteria I tried to use, the, which came up was, was Mauro Icardi. Um, obviously now at... At PSG, but I think he played a very similar role at, at Inter as well. He's one who doesn't pass a lot. I think he, he barely passes the ball compared to others in his position, but he does score a lot. He gets a lot of high quality chances. He's shooting a lot in the, the six, uh, six yard box as well. Um, but I looked at the Premier League as well and tried to kind of capture guys that we think are think of as poachers and look at them who get shots. Maybe in you know the six yard box, I think is a good one because it's a an okay proxy for hunting and trying to poach essentially in that area and the guys who had the most shots in the six yard box were either their left or right foot since the start of last season none of which really stand out to me as as poachers so you've got Roberto Firmino and Dominic Calvert-Lewin have had 18 shots in the six yard box since the last start of last season then Mikel Antonio then Neil Mopai then Haller and then Raheem Sterling so I think that element of Sterling's game is is a new one is the movement that he's he's added to his game in recent years has been really good and helped him get a lot of high quality chances but poacher for me i mean if we go back to this idea of the triangle it feels like they have one side of the triangle which is to get chances and they can't offer a ton out so maybe they've fallen out of the game really mm. um in recent times because of that yeah michael how, how much has this profile of striker taken a hit 
in the last decade or two. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's been a gradual process, I think, away from scoring goals and more towards being, you know, a, a link player who occasionally can score goals. Um, I mean, Mopai, his name is coming up a lot. And I think understandably considering who's in front of goal at the moment. But it seems to me like Graham Potter has almost deliberately filled his player, sorry, filled his team with certain players who are very good at their all-round game but aren't particularly prolific historically. I mean, Danny Welbeck, we've discussed previously, has never scored a lot of goals, but I think is is excellent in terms of pretty much everything else you can want as a forward. I mean, one name I'd throw in here is, is maybe the last of the old-school poaches would be Javier Hernandez. Um, I mean, you look at his stats in his most recent seasons and the goals and assists column is just makes for brilliant reading. Uh, Leverkusen, his last season at Leverkusen, or sorry, his main season at Leverkusen was 17 goals and two assists. His last season there was 11 and three. He then went to West Ham and got eight and zero, then seven and one. And then his most recent campaigns where he hasn't made many appearances for anyone on who scored his last six campaigns, if you like. There's no assist. Um, and there is at least one goal in all of those columns. So, yeah, he's someone who I guess was a pure finisher. Although I think it's worth pointing out that even when we talk about a pure poacher, there's often more to it than just the finish. I mean, Hernandez's movement was really, really good. He had great pace as well. And that would help to stretch defences and maybe create space in behind. So, yeah, even when it's just about scoring goals, there's so much more than the actual finish. As, of course, the, the kind of the whole XG thing really points out. Yeah, Ali, I guess one that I put to you is, would you cast Billy Sharp as as a poacher um, from his time yes. in the EFL? Is he the, is he the quintessential poacher? I think in EFL terms, if you look over the last decade or so, there are probably a few candidates, but Sharp has to be considered one of the great poachers, yeah. I mean, I mean these are guys who, you know, and, and, it, and it's part of the reason why a lot of great goal scorers in the championship have not, translated that into scoring goals in the Premier League. The the very nature of being a striker in the Premier League is so different to being a striker at the top of the championship. And you're you know, the requirements are so different that it's uh you know, it's 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 very difficult to be a Sheffield United and essentially play with ten men outside of the the attacking penalty box when you're not getting particularly close to the penalty box very often and you know that that's potentially a bit disparaging but there have been a ton of examples of 20 25 goal a season strikers in the championship that you can really rely on so long as you're a team that will create a, a certain amount of chances of course so long as you're a mid-table or or better team in the championship that haven't taken particularly well to the Premier League. And that's why I think it's interesting talking about this this maybe more modern prototype striker of which Ollie Watkins is a great example from Championship to Premier League and perhaps Patrick Bamford as well, who, who um, yeah, I, Tom, your influence on me is such now that if I think of a player's profile, I see it in the style of a pizza chart, <laughs> which is infuriating because I already think about pizza enough. And um, when we talk about poachers, you know, as you were talking there... Those guys, they're just basically one slice of pizza, aren't they? Or two slices yeah. of pizza. Thus far on this podcast, we've mainly focused on those playing through the middle, taking up very central positions. So let's just move a little to the side. Michael, back in the day, we used to hear about inside forwards, uh, more specifically an inside left or an inside right. What did that mean then? And is that still a relevant term in the modern game? Yeah, my uh, my granddad would presumably be happy with this one. Um, yeah, I mean, well, back in the day, teams used to play a front five, didn't they, in that pyramid system. So the players 
uh, not the wingers and not the centre forward. They were inside forwards. And obviously we didn't use that for many decades. But I think now, I mean, I've, I've written a few times about how positionally teams are trying to fill five channels now. Whether, you know, regardless of the system, they are pushing forward to form a front five. So I think it does kind of make sense. And especially when you look at a team like Chelsea at the moment, who are playing two players just behind Giroud or Abraham. You know, if one of them's Timo Werner, for example, what position is he playing? He's definitely not number 10. He's not a striker in that system. Okay, he's a forward or an attacker, but that's not particular, uh, particularly specific. So I think calling him an inside left works quite well. I guess the objection would be, you wouldn't usually think of an inside forward going in behind as much as Werner does because he's all about pace. So maybe someone like Eden Hazard, when he was playing a similar role in a similar system for Conte's Chelsea, I think inside left works very well to describe precisely what he did. So yeah, I quite like that phrase. Tom, anyone spring to mind when I say inside forward to you? Yeah, Leroy Sane to me feels like one who is the blueprint for an inside forward. I think of a lot of the chances that he got at Man City where he would find space or you know receive the ball at that, I guess it's to the left-hand side of the box, at quite an acute angle aims for the far post. And for me, that feels like a, a very inside forward position for him to be to be striking from. But um, yeah, it feels like it's one of the more niche roles that you see. I think that very few teams have, have lined up with a forward three that are as narrow as the the, uh, the 3 one that Michael mentioned beforehand this season. It's funny with Sané and Sterling in that City system because they obviously expected to be goal scorers a lot. And I'd almost think of Sané as like more of an outside left at times because he was always, he was left footed in going down the outside and, and smashing the ball across. So I almost think they were both, weren't they? It was almost like Sterling and Sané, they had to be outside forwards when, when they had the ball. And then when the other one had the ball, they had to really motor in the box and get into goal scoring positions, which I guess back in the day probably wasn't, uh, you know, what those players were doing. It feels like maybe another example while we're speaking is maybe Josip Ilicic and... Nice. Papu Gomez perhaps at Atalanta mm. again they're kind of that that narrow trident where they are yeah more moving um, between the lines and forward and staying close to the striker but they're more in I guess the the half spaces or whatever we want to label those areas instead of two out wide um, or two fully you know fully central either it was interesting when you brought up Sane as an inside forward Tom and there was a part of my brain that thought does an inside forward have to be on his other foot, if you know what I mean. Could could you be an inside forward on the left while being left-footed? And I think you've explained why you would have Sané in that category. Uh, and Michael, I think the obvious next step is to mention the phrase inverted wingers, um, which you take credit for the invention of. Just remind me how and why you invented that term and, and what it means to you, particularly in comparison to an inside forward. Yeah, I mean, it's before, I, before I called them that, everyone was calling them inside-out wingers, which I really, really disliked. But I can't be too, I can't be too rude about it because a, a very prolific offender of that is, uh, is now one of our bosses at The Athletic. Um, <laughs> so we'll leave that there. But yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of a slightly modern trend, I would say. I mean, there were always some wingers who kind of played on the wrong side. That wasn't an unusual thing. But I think the, you know, the, the fact that they were always swapped, if it makes sense. You know, it wasn't interesting to me if you had a right foot on the left and a right foot on the right. You just happened to have two good wingers who were right-footed. But if you had one lefty and one righty and you put them on the wrong sides, that to me felt like more of a tactical trend. And I think it happened because of the rise of attacking fullbacks. You know, a side like Liverpool now, it's not like they play without wingers in the old school sense. They just happen to be the fullbacks. So, of course, you have Salah and Mane who are coming inside and they're being the main goal scorers. 
so yeah, it's, it's a phrase now. I mean, 10 years ago, it felt like a slightly novel thing. Whereas now, if there's a young left-footed winger coming forward, you almost expect them to play on the right, don't you? It's, it's much more unusual if they do play as a traditional winger. So yeah, it's something that felt quite novel 10 years ago and now feels very standard. Yeah, shout out Dwight McNeil, who uh, <laughs> very left-footed, seemingly only plays on the left. I remember we spoke to Andy Jones about that when we did a podcast on Sean Dyche's Burnley uh, around this time last year. Tom, in terms of a, a classic winger, an old-school winger, chalk on the boots is always the phrase that gets used, which I, which is one of those old football expressions that I still really rate. I think it's a beautiful visual. Um, can we use data, statistics to identify a classic winger rather than a, a, a more modern cut inside winger? Yeah, definitely. It almost feels like we should have some sort of measure of literal chalk on boots to see how uh, how positionally they uh, they stay out wide. But no, um, classic wingers for me are ones that positionally you look at a touch map or a heat map, they're getting a lot of touches in their channels, a really high proportion of the touch in the channels. They carry the ball a lot, they take players on, um, they cross the ball a lot as well. And for me, one that sticks out for me is Antonio Kondreva, who would year on year consistently put up really, really high crossing numbers and also look to beat a man and, and stay wide as well. And it does feel a little bit like classic wingers, uh, again, are maybe someone that we see slightly less of. And I wonder if that's because teams are now a bit wiser to to expected goals, to data and to the fact that continuously crossing as a strategy for scoring goals isn't isn't one you can always rely on. So yeah, I think that those are those are the ways that you can look to measure a, a, a classic winger. Michael, you talked about inside left and inside right earlier, and you're quite keen on on bringing back or at least increasing the usage of outside left and outside right when we're talking about a specific type of player. Yeah, I mean, well, certainly when it's relevant. I mean, I think the issue is now that we don't see many players like that. But I mean, to kind of, to support what you said earlier about inside forwards, I think outside forwards have to be playing on the natural side, don't they? You have to be a right-footed winger on the right or a left-footed winger down the left. I slightly disagree with what Tom said about Sané, but I agree that if you're a goal scorer, it feels like you're not an outside forward. So for me, it's someone like Jesus Navas at Man City. I mean, he's become a right-back now, as a lot of these players have. Valencia, Manchester United was another one. But Navas, was he just stayed out there and crossed. He never scored goals. He would never move inside to be in the kind of De Bruyne positions. He just stayed out wide. And for me, that's what, you know, you go back to Stanley Matthews. That's what they did, didn't they? They just jinxed alongside the, the touchline and went down the outside. So, yeah, when it's relevant, I think Douglas Costa, when he plays on the left, he was a really good example of a player like that, who just loved beating his fullback and whipping in across. Um, I mean, Pepe for Arsenal has played a couple of times on the left recently. I think he did that because he's quite one-footed, isn't he? He always goes down that side. So, like I say, teams are playing with a front five now, and therefore I think it makes some kind of sense to use the old front five language. Nice. Okay, yeah, I like that. Let's move back inside. I want to ask you about second striker. Now, this for me is a term that doesn't really get used at all anymore, Tom. I'm sure Michael could talk us through the history of the 4-4-2 being on the wane uh, pretty consistently over the last 20 years or so to the point of, of almost being extinct or at least in its old guise. But how many second strikers are there that you can find and, and how do you decide who is one? Yeah, very few really. I think second striker is one that from a data point of view is a bit easier to pinpoint because... 
I think you can confidently say uh, the one behind the the other one in a four four one one is a second striker, or others which which perhaps play in the hole and are a little bit closer to um, the striker in the system. So players in those positions are then labelled as second strikers, um, or at least in in kind of Opta's data that they are, which we have access to here. And we see this since the start of 2018-19. Iosi Perez is the player who's played the most as a as a second striker. Then it's Bobby Decord over Reed. If we go back a bit. Earlier, Shinji Okazaki is is the one that sticks out for me for for Leicester. So, uh, not really players that stick in the mind really as a uh, second striker. There's not many other players who do it a lot and consistently. I think that's probably down to the system or systems like that being used less. Decode over Reed in there is is a debatable one. I'd say he doesn't feel like a, a second striker, perhaps. Tom, it's slightly random, but on the subject of Okazaki, I'd love you or or Mark or someone with the with the data to look back at Okazaki's um, title-winning campaign. Because we always thought of him as a striker, because that's where he, he played for Japan and everything. But when you think about what he did, he never scored goals. He never looked like scoring goals. He never assisted goals. He was all about running and basically tackling in midfield. And I think that I'm not really sure of another player who's played that role, where he was almost like a third midfielder that had a pr- primarily defensive role and didn't actually do much in the opposition box. So I completely get what you mean, that he was, you know, in one sense was the archetypal second striker. But it's almost like he had his own particular role in that system, which was like the, you know, almost like the deputy Kante, just playing higher up the pitch. I really enjoyed it. But uh, Michael, in terms of second striker, definitely understand that it's a function of fewer systems where this would exist. But isn't there a little bit of a blurred line between a number 10 and a, and a second striker. You know, Tom mentioned a 4-4-1-1 there where the one is a second striker, but in in pure formational terms, that's just considered a number 10 now, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think they've probably got to have certain characteristics. I mean, Leicester played Iheanacho and Vardy up front at the weekend, so I think Iheanacho was probably a second striker. For example, if you look at the uh, system Southampton play, where they have two wide players coming inside and then two forwards... It's almost like the wide players who become the, the temporary number 10s, don't they? And then you've got, obviously, Danny Ings and Shea Adams, who, I guess, Shea Adams, you would say, is the second the second striker. So, yeah, I think it kind of makes sense. But if we're talking about 4-2-3-1, I think usually, yeah, usually they're a number 10 these days, aren't they? Rather than a proper second striker. Let's move on to the inevitable false nine discussion. Michael, what is a false nine and what isn't a false nine? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's when your most advanced central player is more of a number 10 than a number 9, I'd say. You obviously, you can't play with a, a true number 9 and then a false 9. That doesn't make sense. It's more about the positioning than the style of player for me. I mean, sometimes you get a makeshift striker because a team has run out of forwards and they're all injured. And so you get a midfielder playing up front and they just stand next to the centre-backs. I don't think that's a false 9. It may be a slightly unconventional number nine, but I mean, what we really mean is a player who's playing in between the lines, usually with two wide forwards. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think Messi and Firmino are good examples because they were number 10 at the start of their career. Often they played as number 10 for, for their countries. I think that was their natural role. Um, but they went to sides who played 4-3-3 without a proper centre forward. And therefore they they took on this role that was as a link player, probably more responsibility for goal scoring than they would have expected. Messi, of course, exploded into one of the best goal scorers around. Firmino has never quite 
hit the levels you'd expect of a, of a proper center forward. To use a kind of very specific example to illustrate what I mean here, Spain at Euro 2012, for their first game against Italy, they surprisingly used Fabregas as their centre attacker. And obviously Fabregas was naturally a midfielder, was coming short, was linking play. He was playing as a false nine as Messi would. But actually by the time they played in the final, when they also played against Italy, Fabregas was always running in behind and he was making the runs you would expect of, you know, a Spanish striker at the time like Roberto Soldado. So I, I don't think he was a false nine at that point. He was just a midfielder playing up front. So I think it's quite a specific thing we mean when we talk about a, a false nine. And the best part of that Spain 2012 analogy is that a true number nine playing for Spain won the golden boot, Fernando Torres, <laughs> who, who ended up on three goals tied with a number of others uh, and won the gong technically because he played fewer minutes because he, he wasn't really needed in, in, a, in a sense, which I always think is quite a nice wrinkle. Tom, you've written about Roberto Firmino recently and specifically a little bit of data scouting, looking ahead to who Liverpool might have flagged up as potential Firmino replacement or a rival, if you will, to, to push him a little bit harder. How did you go about this? Because I think as everyone knows, his role within this exceptional Liverpool side over the last few years is certainly unusual in comparison to most players who play number nine. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, though, there's very much two approaches. And the first one was, how do we find a backup for Firmino who can do something similar, give him a breather, mean that Liverpool can play the same sort of way and not really disrupt things too much with Firmino on the bench and this new player in the starting lineup. And another was keep the, the profile of the backup striker the same, which at the moment is, is Divock Origi, and have a more traditional number nine there. Um, and then from that, I was looking at, you know, what are the traits of of Firmino, who are players similar to him, who are doing similar things to him. And a couple of names that came up for the false nine role were uh, Amine Guri, who plays for Nice, who's in his, his first campaign in, in the top five leagues, having moved from Lyon, I think, in the summer, and having a really, really solid campaign. Then there's Jonathan David, who, just as I was writing the piece, James Pearce popped up and kind of said, oh, that's an interesting name, because he was on the shortlist for Liverpool in the summer, alongside Diego Jota uh, and Ismail Assar. And I think David is as close as you can get statistically this season to Firmino um, in his in his role for Lille. He's very much a, a pressing forward who runs in behind but also can link play as well and is really solid at, at retaining possession. So again, ticks all the boxes for the Firmino role. And the third option I put down was was Briel Mbolo for Borussia Mönchengladbach who is having a good season and again, based on the data, looks very similar to Firmino but I think he's, he's struggled a lot with injury so he's more of an outside shout. But then if you look at having a kind of more of a traditional number nine, I think they can offer a lot of similar things that Firmino does. Maybe they don't or haven't displayed the work rate that he has at the moment. Players like Haaland, um, players like Mbappe, which wasn't in the article, but you'd include in a slightly longer shortlist. Players like Andre Silva, Eintracht Frankfurt, and Darwin Nunez was another at Benfica who has some really great numbers. But yeah, it was a really interesting exercise. I quite like doing the scouting pieces because it makes you try to get into the the mindset of, okay, if I'm you know, Jurgen Klopp and Michael Edwards, how am I thinking through this situation? What's the kind of player that, that we want? And then from a data point of view, what are the... Uh, what are the metrics, the numbers that are going to help me filter down to some some targets which are sensible? I enjoy those pieces as well. I'd like you to do more of them, in fact. And I can see why uh, off the back of pieces like that, you might get nominated for some big awards, Tom. Uh, it'll probably be a good time to mention that you can read that article if you head to The Athletic, search for Warville 
in the search function. You could read all of his articles, in fact. And then you could move on to Coxie's articles as well. And if you don't have a subscription but you'd like one, well, we've got a code for that as well. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking. Current offer, £3.99 a month for six months of your annual subscription. So give that a go today if you fancy uh, widening your football reading horizons via Tom and Michael and their colleagues. We've just got a few little itches to scratch before we finish here. I've really enjoyed this. Michael, I just want to go back out wide briefly because within the midfielder glossary, we had a load of of quite fun foreign terms that have bled into English language or just can help us pigeonhole certain types of midfield role. In terms of wingers, I mean, this really does mean different things in different nations. Yeah, so in countries that, I mean, traditionally play a 4-3-3, the Netherlands, for example... You know, you're only a winger if you're a wide forward, really, in a 4-3-3 formation. If you're playing in a 4-4-2, they consider that a wide midfielder. Probably the same in Portugal. I mean, in England, because of the historic dominance of 4-4-2, by those definitions, there'd be no wingers. Like the, the 1966 World Cup winning side were famously called the Wingless Wonders because they didn't have anyone like Stanley Matthews or Tom Finney in the side. That was considered 4-4-2. We'd probably consider it a diamond midfield today. I think it depends really on the role of the player as much as the formation. You think of Manchester United in the 90s and early 2000s with David Beckham and Ryan Giggs. Would you consider Giggs a winger? I think you would. Would you consider Beckham a winger? I'm not sure you would just because he he could play central midfield. He didn't really have that turn of speed. He wasn't necessarily about beating players on the outside, was he? He kind of was a bit more De Bruyne-like in terms of he could cross from in front of him. So yeah, again, I think it's... um, it's obviously obviously a phrase that almost requires some clarification now in in the in the age of the inverted winger, um, but certainly in uh, I remember reading uh, Renus McKell's book about Ajax and his time in charge of uh, Holland, and he very proudly says the Netherlands is one of the only countries who produces true wingers, and I quite like that. So uh, I will bow to his judgment in that respect. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Also, you talked earlier about how. Being defined as an attacker isn't necessarily about the player, but but often more about the role they play, the system they play in. How close are we getting to the point of calling, for example, a wing back in a 3-5-2 or a 3-4-3 an attacker? Because in the last month or so, we have seen Callum Hudson-Odoi start at right wing back for Chelsea in a 3-4-2-1 3-4-3, however you prefer to define it. And that is, in terms of his profile as a player a very attacking player is he an attacker when he plays in that position that's a really good question I think he probably is isn't he I think if he plays a wing back in in these modern systems where you're expected to be part of a front five and I think crucially if your side spends a lot of time in possession so that you are pushing high up the pitch rather than defending I guess you probably are an attacker I mean I recall a a very frosty post-match interview with Nuno Espirito Santo a couple of seasons ago where the interviewer quite innocuously referred to, must have been Doherty and whoever was on the left, maybe Johnny, as wingbacks. And he got really annoyed and said, they're not wingbacks, they're wide forwards. And I thought, I'm not being funny, but they spend a lot of time level with their own centre-backs, don't they? <laughs> to, be, to be wide forwards. <laughs> Does that mean he thought he was playing 3-2-5 at the time, do you think? I guess so, but I don't... I mean, what do we call the... You know, I would have called Jota... And Traore, uh, Traore mm. the wide forwards in that system. 
So I don't, I mean, does he think of them as three strikers? I, I don't know, but I'm sorry. I can't accept uh, Matt Doherty playing for Nuno's Wolves as a wide forward, I'm afraid. I just can't. And Tom, João Cancelo of Man City, he's not helping us out much at the moment in terms of, of being able to categorise or pigeonhole football players. No, absolutely not. I mean, he's one who, again, the minute where he starts on the uh, on the pitch or on the team sheet is probably the last time you'll see him properly play that that <laughs> position. He's floating into in front of the the midfield and playing as a central midfielder, even though normally he's down as a right back. So I think that you know there's that definitely skews his data or skews his profile when com- comparing him to others. And I think another one is an example of that, perhaps more so in the championship last season versus this year, is Stuart Dallas as well. Mm who would start wide and then come centrally. And if you look at his touch map and where he's picking up the ball, it's it's not remotely like any other fullback in that system. So to just go back to the point about Callum Hudson-Odoi, I think that Conte's into this season, again, has a really a good example with Hakimi at the kind of right wing-back position. Again, he's not a wing-back, he's really attacking. He's getting into the box. He's getting popping up at the far post. He's creating chances in the, the attacking third. So I think that he's another great example of how these players normally on paper look like wingbacks, but their roles are are completely different really. Lastly, Michael, are there any players, Premier League players, well-known players that you just can't find a good term for? Yeah, I don't really know what Kevin De Bruyne is, particularly when he was playing, you know, in the in his classic role in a 4-3-3. He's not a number 10 because he's too wide. He's not a winger because he's too narrow. He's stretching the boundaries of, of a midfield player, isn't he? Because he's so high up the pitch. And he's he's not really a striker because he's not going in behind. He's he's smack bang in the middle of about four different positions. And, and I would agree with you, Ali, in terms of inside forward, I think because he's right-footed, I wouldn't really like calling him a kind of inside right either. So I don't, I don't really know what that role is that he plays. Um, so I, I've slightly struggled with that. Did we not go last time and call him a, a free eight? Or do you think that that is still not one that uh, appropriately sums up his role with this team? No, I mean, that's good. I mean, I think I'm right in saying he, he almost invented that. He was certainly the first person I heard using it about himself. So yeah, I do quite like that. But I'm not sure which other players it would uh, it would apply to. But you're right, that is probably the best definition, especially because he said it himself. So yeah, fair play. Free eight, false nine, and I've been trying to push floaty 10 for quite a while now, but uh, no one seems to be buying it. Maybe you could sneak that into an article at some point soon, Michael. Although we have spoken about the, uh, the, the lack of pure 10s in the modern game at the moment, hopefully because everything is cyclical, we'll get back to that glorious age at some point soon. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time out, talking me through a a glossary of terms for midfielders, a style guide, if you will. Uh, This has been brought to you by The Athletic, the Zonal Marking podcast, and we'd love it if you subscribe to this podcast feed so that you can catch us each week on a whole host of of weird and wonderful topics just like this one. Um, We'd love it if you subscribe to The Athletic, if you don't already, and you can do that by going to theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking. You'll pay £3.99 a month for six months initially, and we would encourage you to do that because there's a lot of great work being done by a lot of people working very, very hard to produce the best content that they can. So thank you for listening to this pod. Uh, We'll talk again next week, and let us know if you've got any ideas for future episodes. One of the things we've enjoyed most over the last few months are your contributions and how they have led to 
special episodes or answering questions within episodes. So do get in, ch- in touch with any or all of us on Twitter and we'll do our best to get round to the most exciting and interesting topics. Talk again next week. The Athletic.